So the scripture lesson comes from Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it reads, Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. You have heard the ancient story. So I was going to start out by saying, if any of you are wondering what I'm doing up here, you were in good company, and now you're probably all wondering what I'm doing up here. I'm kind of wondering what I'm doing up here myself. Um, I think Russ played a trick on me. So a few weeks ago, Russ called, and he said, hey, do you like to preach? And I thought, heck yeah, I like to preach. I like to talk about what I think. I like for people to listen to me talk about what I think. And he said, well, great. How would you like to fill in while we're, help fill in while we're in Spain? And I said, what the heck have I got myself into? <clears throat> so prompt, so um, I'm sorry. So Russ told me that we were having summer series, majoring in the minors, a study of the 12 minor Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament, and that Dan and I would be preaching on Hosea and Joel. So I promptly went to my Bible, and I read Hosea, and I read Joel, and I got together with Dan, and I said, is it okay if I preach on the locusts instead of the prostitutes? I freely admit, when Russ told me what the topic for this morning's homily was, that my reaction was not particularly favorable. I think when he told Amy that he wanted to do a series on the Minor Prophets, her reaction was fairly similar. Aren't the books of the prophets full of that angry, condemning, punishing God, a God that I long ago turned away from? I hate the phrase, God-fearing Christians. If being afraid of God is part of being a Christian, then I'm not a very good one. Of all the prophets, all of the prophets talk of punishment and destruction. It seems to me designed to create fear. Until last week, I had not given any consideration to the minor prophets. So imagine my surprise when I learned that the message of the prophets is not at all what I thought. The message of the prophets is not a message of condemnation and forgiveness, but one of, of, of forgiveness and mercy. It's not a message of anger and punishment, but one of possibility and change and transformation. Maybe the minor prophets aren't all about a God of anger and vengeance. It's still, I think, nonetheless, the impression that a lot of people get. It's what I thought, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I was raised in a church that preached hellfire and damnation from the podium every Sunday. It may, you know, it may not have been all of what was taught, but it is what I heard. My path back to church and to God required me to have a huge, I mean a huge reconciliation between the God that I was taught about when I was growing up 
and the one that we find in the Brooks of the Prophets, and the God that I actually now have a relationship with, and as it turns out, we also find in the Book of the Prophets. Let's tell the truth, though. It's a whole, whole lot easier upon first reading to hear the message of the punishment that God threatens to heap on Israel. I mean, after all, when you read these books, there are way more verses on that idea than you see on the message of God's forgiveness. So I'm thinking that maybe one of the reasons for that is that the prophets just really needed to get the people's attention. And Joel does that with a, a ravaging plague of locusts like has never ever been seen before. So I'm going to come back to that and just say that if I had not been not been invited by Russ to do this, I don't really think that I would have ever even considered the book of Joel. But I've discovered it's been a really phenomenal experience to, to be invited to preach, um, to do this research, to learn something different than what I had known. I've discovered that the ancient books of the prophets are actually very current and very pertinent to our times. They are full of questions concerning issues that we are still facing thousands of years later, and that the prophet Joel has something very valuable and important to say to us. So we'll get back to the locust now. So I really could have skipped this part, but I have this kind of thing about insects. You can ask my sister, I have like a collection of cicada carcasses that share my altar space with statues of the Buddha, an icon of Mary, and it's an interesting little assortment of things. So there are several different opinions about the story of the locust. There are some that say that the locust was a situation that the children of, that the Israelites were already facing, that they were living in this plague, and that it was punishment for God, from God. Then there's another school that says that it was a warning of an impending disaster, but still as punishment from God. And then there are those that say that the locust invasion was symbolism for an enemy army that would destroy Israel. Who knows, can't say for sure, and I'm not sure that it makes much difference. But it doesn't take much imagination to draw parallels between a plague of locusts and all the ills that plague us today between the ways a locust invasion of that magnitude would have affected the people of that day and the issues we face in our current times. Imagine food sources destroyed, people going hungry. Sound familiar? Think global hunger and starvation. Imagine fields and forests decimated. Sound familiar? Think deforestation and global warming. It would have crippled the nation's economy. People with no money end up with no place to live, on the streets, homeless. Sound familiar? The times, they haven't changed that much. So I read what a number of theologians and preachers had to say on the book of Joel and today's scriptures. And since I'm a big proponent of take what you leave and read the, leave the rest, I'm pretty much ignoring all of that. But some of what a few had to say did open up a couple of avenues of thought for me. 
So I recently discovered a new author that I'm really quite liking. His name is Rob Bell. It's not new, but I'm newly discovering him. Um, I love the way he writes. It's kind of a stream of consciousness, conversational sort of style. He's really funny. He's really irreverent. He's really smart and knowledgeable about the Bible. In his book called, What is the Bible? Subtitle, how can ancient, an, an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories transform the way you think and feel about everything? And one of the main points that he makes in this book is that the reason that people don't read the Bible or don't find it relevant and pertinent to their lives today is because they don't know how to read it. So I'm going to reread our scripture from today. Again, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And the title of chapter 2 is The Day of the Lord. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So let's start with the pour out my spirit on all people part. And then we'll come back to the prophecies and dreams and visions and the afterwards and in those days in a moment. So I found a short lesson on the scripture passage. It's by a gentleman named uh, Robert Pritchard. I found it helpful. I don't line up with everything that he talks about, but I like the way that he broke down these words. So he says, I points to the sovereignty of God. Will is the determination of God. Those are Pritchard's words. I would probably say something more like what God wants. Pour out speaks to the generosity of God, and it's not just a little trickle. And then my spirit refers to the personality of God. So I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just the religious and political elite of the times, not just men of a particular age and status, but it's for everybody, for all people. God does not discriminate. Gender, age, income, social standing, none of that matters. Each person as valuable as the next. Servants are given gifts, as were women, old men, young men. But we have to really understand that that was a radical proclamation in Joel's time. But there still exists an imbalance of power that desperately needs writing in our society. The times, they haven't changed that much. So on the prophecy, dreams, and visions, uh, one resource explained that prophecy, dreams, and visions could be interpreted, and I think I got this from a children's Bible, actually, can be interpreted as having a meaningful voice. Now, that works for me. A source that I study, A Course in Miracles, teaches that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. The worst pain that a human being can suffer is that of feeling unseen and unheard. Imagine the marginalized, the ignored, those who feel invisible and unimportant having a meaningful voice. Think Martin Luther King, I have a dream. They're trying to get us to wake up. Something else that's important about dreams and visions is that 
They only come at a critical moment in history in order to advance God's cause on earth. I'd say we're at a pretty critical moment. And God's cause, so that's the same as what God wants. So what is it that God wants? Last week I shared a little vocabulary lesson on, from Hosea on the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A. Now yada is the Hebrew word for knowledge. and It's not the kind of intellectual knowledge that we think about, but it's the kind of personal interrelational knowledge of knowing somebody. So God wants to be known, known in a way so that our knowledge of God changes who we are and how we are in the world. God wants to pour down his spirit, wants to overflow us with her personality. And if these gifts of spirit are given at critical moments in history in order to advance God's cause, then that would mean strength and wisdom to do the hard things, a sense of right and justice to help point us in the right direction. God wants to pour out God's spirit on us for a purpose so that we can be empowered to make changes. Back to the scripture, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That could easily be one of the greatest promises that God makes. If you can imagine a world that is created from that, and it happens amongst all this talk of locust and world destruction. So it's not any wonder, I think, that we miss the message. But whether or not we hear it, and whether or not we open ourselves to receive it, God has made a promise that we will be transformed. When God's spirit is poured out on us, we are never, ever again the same. And then we have the question of when. So that and afterwards, and that part in the scripture passage that says, uh, in those days, those are two really small, but really very significant words. Theologians and preachers and teachers, they've been arguing about that forever. So my question is, isn't when, quote, when, a question that every single one of us asks ourselves every single day? When is it going to change? When is the violence going to stop? When are we going to stop hurting each other? Is Joel speaking of the end times? Is that what he means? That's what Ray Pritchard from earlier thinks, as do many, many people, that the day of the Lord comes after Judgment Day and that we won't see it until the second coming of Christ. But that's not how I choose to read the scriptures. And as a matter of fact, there are lots of other people that agree with me, or maybe I agree with them, since they're published and I'm not. And I'm not even all that great at delivering a talk without bumbling all over myself. I believe God's spirit is pouring down on us now and always, but we won't be forced by God to receive it. So one proof we have um, that we can understand this ongoing transformation 
is happening now is because of the very words of Joel that are found repeated again 800 years later in the New Testament book of Acts where it's taught that the, the speaking of tongues that happened on Pentecost was actually the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So it only makes sense to me that if it could happen once in history, it could happen again. After all, if there's anything that history teaches us, it's that it repeats itself. Then I got some additional help understanding this idea from, again, from Rob Bell. Um, in another of his books that's titled Love Wins, subtitled A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. In this book he addresses, as in others, he addresses the issue of understanding the meaning of a Hebrew word that was used to convey the future. And Bell says that that word could be understand, understood to mean something like in this time as well as in a time to come. The prophets and Joel, it's no exception, have been talking about life in the age to come for hundreds of years. I read that and I think, isn't a time to come the next moment after this one? And then the next moment after this one. So a time to come is happening now and it's happening now, and it's happening now. In the same book, um, one chapter is titled, I love this, chap this title, I could have used it for my sermon title if I hadn't already picked God's Not Done With Us Yet, but this chapter, Bell, he's actually talking about the book of Revelation. So obviously, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, isn't one of the minor prophets. But one prophet's message seems pretty much the same as the next, with dire warnings about the consequences of turning away from God. And just like our friend Joel, the, John is preaching the same thing, only his imagery is way scarier than a swarm of locusts. I don't think I'm too far off topic since Joel prophecies about the day of the Lord, as does John. And just like the book of Joel, Revelations doesn't end with destruction and bloodshed, but with words of hope and renewal. It ends with the author describing a new world that God wants to give us. It's a beautiful vision of a world where there's peace, a world where there's no place for hate, for violence, oppression of any kind, a world that is, I quote Bell, rooted in, driven by, and permeated with God's love. And here's the important thing to remember about the nature of God's love. God's love demands freedom. We are free to resist and reject and rebel against God's love and God's ways. We always have been, we always will be. And if the minor prophets show us anything, they show us that we continue to do just that over and over again. It's here in this book that Rob Bell asks what he considers the obvious question. How could someone choose any other way with the universe of love and joy and peace right in front of us, all of it ours, if we would simply leave behind our old ways and receive the new world that God wants to give us? And I love what Rob Bell says here. He says, the answer to how is yes. 
I just love that. There are so many seemingly unanswerable questions presented in the books of the Minor Prophets and in life. The big question for me and the question that I ask every single day is how can people keep being so awful to each other and how can God keep forgiving them? Maybe the answer isn't some kind of flowery, poetic exaltation on God's love. Maybe the answer to how can people keep being so awful and God keep forgiving us, maybe the answer is yes. And if the answer to how is yes, then maybe the answer to when is also yes. Yes to the unanswerable, yes to the unexplainable. These are the questions, or more accurately, according to Walter Brueggemann, these are the tensions that we are free to live, leave, we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't. So we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom love requires, and remembering and being grateful that God's not done with us yet. May it be so.